4, verses 11 and 12. Solomon writes, Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Father, tonight as we consider these verses in the midst of our missions week, let them penetrate our hearts. God, I pray that we would leave with the gospel in our minds of Jesus and that we leave with this phrase in our minds, oh, hold them back. So do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a number of things to say uh, that can be said from these two verses. Um, obviously, when we read, deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter, there is an application to physical death here, isn't there? We're going to get to some other applications about the soul and about spiritual death. And we we do recognize that the soul is paramount. The soul is most important. But when we read these verses, we do remember that God loves the body too. That the soul is, is connected with the body. That when the body dies, the soul goes into its eternity. And so when we think about the importance of the soul, we don't neglect the importance of the body. And therefore, there is a very important application in these verses to rescuing people from physical death. Christians must care about rescuing people from physical death. Solomon is teaching us that. And we're not exactly sure what Solomon had in mind. Who were the people in Solomon's mind and in his day who were being taken away to death that were staggering to slaughter? We're not sure whom he was thinking of. Perhaps prisoners who were being executed unlawfully. Perhaps people who were being persecuted for their faith. We don't know. But there are a lot of applications to us, aren't there? I hope you can think of numerous ways in which we as God's people ought to be on the forefront of protecting people in our world who are being taken away to death physically, staggering to their death physically, in ways that we can help them. Let me just give you a few reminders. One, just from the Old Testament. You remember that this exact passage, though it was happening after Solomon wrote it, uh, had great application during the time when the people of Israel were being taken away out of their land into exile, first into Assyria and then into Babylon. The Assyrians came down, took the people of Israel, and carried them off as exiles and slaughtered many of them. And then the same thing happened when the Babylonians came to Judah and Jerusalem and carried the people away. And I was reading this week the book of Obadiah, and it's just one chapter, and it's an interesting little book because it's not written to God's people. I think it may be one of only a couple of books in the Bible that's not actually mainly addressed to God's people. It's addressed to the Edomites, the neighbors of the Israelites, and God's bone to pick with them is when my people were being carried away into exile, you didn't do anything about it. They're your ancient relatives, Edom 
the, the country of Edom were the descendants of Esau. They were your brothers. And not only did you not rescue them and protect them, but you stood by and, and applauded that they were being carried off. And God judges Edom for that. So there's an application in the Old Testament. When someone is being carried away, God says, you ought to be there to deliver them, to rescue them. A modern sort of application of that would be the Holocaust, wouldn't it? It's a shame when we read the stories that there weren't more Oscar Schindlers and people like him who fulfilled this verse in a very real and physical way. But in our own day, there are examples and ways that we ought to be fulfilling it in a physical way. I wrote down a few. One would be, as we look at the world and we see the the world war-torn and disaster-torn, we as Christians ought to be on the front edge of of getting out into war-torn places and disaster-torn places and delivering those people, rescuing those people, providing food and blankets and water and all of those things. People in these countries like where the tsunami hit or like where the wars are going on in northern Africa and other places are devastated. And oftentimes they die not as a direct result of some battle or as a direct result of the natural disaster. They die because of the fallout afterwards when they don't have what they need. And we ought to be at the front of that. And and there are some Christian groups that are that you could support and pray for. Samaritan's Purse is probably the best one, the most well-known one. And then there are people who are staggering to death because they don't have water to drink. It's not disaster. It's not war. It's just they don't have water. And lots of you, most of you know about the project in Nigeria um, that Philomena has begun and some of us are working on. And there are other places in the world. But people are staggering to physical death because they don't have water. And we can hold them back by caring enough to help provide water for them. And then I wrote down... um, the fact of martyrs, Christian brothers and sisters all over the world who are being carried away to death, physical death, because of their faith. And again, we have the opportunity to help them, to help provide protection to them, to help their families when they do die. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs is a great organization that does that. We ought to be, again, out there um, with our prayers, with our money, and, and a few of us with our hands and feet caring for those people. A little closer to home, abortion. I think this verse applies in that regard too. And there are lots of things we need to do about abortion, but this verse calls us to be on the front lines of holding them back, of protecting children. There are a lot of different ways to do that, um, but we need to be about that. This verse could apply to human trafficking. I don't think about this a whole lot because we don't see it in our country. Um, It happens, but we don't see it. But I've been reading this biography of Amy Carmichael in preparation for Sunday, and her whole, her whole ministry became, after the first few years of doing a lot of different things on the mission field, her whole ministry became rescuing little girls who had been sold as temple prostitutes to the Hindu gods, rescuing them physically and then raising them for Jesus. And that kind of thing still goes on all over the world. Uh, some of it's religiously motivated most of it's just monetarily motivated but there are little girls primarily little girls all over the world who are being trafficked today and christians should be on the front edge of rescuing them of holding them back from destruction and again i'll just reference a ministry that you could look up international justice mission um, is a group of people who have said we're going to take this on we're going to fight against trafficking we're going to rescue girls from it A couple of other 
applications really close to home would be you know someone who is slipping down the road of drugs or alcohol and staggering to their own early death that way or someone who's in a violent situation where they are in danger. When someone around us is in danger, just someone we know, it doesn't have to be some ministry that's out of the ends of the world, someone around us that we know whose life is in danger because of drugs or alcohol or domestic violence, who ought to be the one that's there stepping in, helping them? The Christian, right? Make sure you do that when the opportunities present themselves. And one other, because we have a number of people in our church in the medical field, this verse, I think, gives impetus to Christian doctors, right? Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Hold them back. People are dying, and one way that Christians serve is to be in medicine and help them. So John and the rest of you guys, be encouraged. that That's an application of you fulfilling this verse. And the point is, in all these ways, in all these ways, there are applications here and now to physical life and physical death where Christians ought to be on the front lines of these things. And verse 12 reminds us, if we turn a deaf ear to people in our world who are suffering and dying, God knows about it in verse 12a, and there will be a just retribution in verse 12b. Will he not render to man according to his work? Now, you don't have to do all these things. I listed one, two, three, four, nine things. I listed nine applications. You don't have to do all nine. You don't have to be in every one of them. But the point is, who is it that God's put in your path? What is it that God's put on your heart in the realm of Proverbs twenty-four, eleven? Do something about that. Don't fail to care about that. You don't have to do everything, but do something. And I want you to just think, just for a moment, just think, who is it that God's put in my path? Who is it that God's laid on my heart? What is it? It's the end of the earth. Maybe it's right here in Cincinnati. I don't know who it is for you. But you think for just a moment, where am I supposed to be stepping in just to help the suffering? Make sure you go do that. Make sure you go do that. Now, there is obviously a second avenue of application that I want to get to. Because it's mission week, missions week, and because, as I said, the soul is preeminent, remember, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What does it profit a man if he gets better from cancer but dies without Jesus? Profits him a little but not very much. The soul is preeminent, and because of that fact, and because these verses are rather open-ended, Solomon doesn't say, oh, I'm only talking about physical problems, nor does he say, I'm only talking about spiritual death. They're just open-ended. So the application has to go down both lines. It has to go down the physical line, but it has to go down the spiritual line as well. And so what I want to do now is assume that Solomon would say that spiritual death is most important. When he tells us to hold them back, when he tells us to deliver those people who are staggering to their death and to to rescue them, that the most important application is spiritual. And because that's the most important application, I want to spend the rest of our time on that. And I just want to ask three questions, three missions-type questions, three questions of this verse or these two verses. Number one, who is dying? Who is dying? Number two, what are we to do about it? 
And then number three, why should we do anything? Who's dying? What are we going to do about it? Why should we do anything at all? So number one, who is dying spiritually? Who in our world right now is staggering to slaughter? Who in our world is being taken away to death spiritually? Well, billions of people, right? Billions of people. John is going to put some pictures and some facts and some prayer requests in your hands just to give you three sort of ideas of who it is that this verse involves, who it is that's being taken away to death, who it is that's staggering to slaughter in our world. There's three different groups of people tucked away in little corners of the earth that I want to speak about. One group, some of you will have in your hands a sheet of paper about the Afar tribe in Ethiopia, the Afar tribe in Ethiopia. They are a tribe of 1.4 million people, 1.4 million people, so almost the size of Cincinnati. They live in the eastern desert of Ethiopia. A few of them live over in Eritrea and Somalia, which are the countries right to the east of Ethiopia. And the reason why they live across the borders is because they're cattle herders. So their lifestyle is nomadic, these Afar people. They herd sheep, they herd cattle, they herd camels. And they are known in Ethiopia because they are the only people in the country besides the police who are able to carry weapons. And the reason why is because the police are afraid to take their weapons. They carry, many of the young men and middle-aged men too, they carry assault rifles with them everywhere they go. And drivers like the man Yossi who takes us all around the place and takes Anthony really all around the country, they don't like to go east. Because if you go east and you hit a sheep or a cow in the road and it belongs to an Afar person, your life might be replaced for the cow or the sheep. And because they're so violent, because they're nomadic, because they speak their own language that no one else speaks, the Afar language, it's very difficult to reach them. There are no churches among these people. There's no Bible in their language. There are a few Bible stories that have been recorded on cassettes and CDs in their language, but no Bible. Less than 50 believers out of 1.4 million people. There's no one who regularly preaches the gospel among them. There are two American missionaries who have periodic contact and one Ethiopian evangelist named Dawit, which is the Ethiopian way of saying David, who has periodic contact. 1.4 million people, less than 50 believers, and to get to them, you have to be able to face their machine guns. And yet, they're dying without Jesus. And this verse tells us to hold them back, to deliver them. The second group of people are called the Siwa people of Egypt. I know I've talked to you about the Siwa before. Smaller group, much smaller group, 38,000 people. Um, They live in the western part of Egypt, and if you've ever looked at a map of the western part of Egypt, you would be surprised that anybody lives in the western part of Egypt because the whole thing is a desert, except for a 20 by 80 kilometer oasis, 70 miles beneath the surface of the desert floor, an oasis that you can only get to uh, by means of a gorge that goes in but an oasis where there's water, where there are dates and palm trees and olive trees and so on. And so these people live there and they make their living agriculturally and live off the land 
and basically live in a closed culture, totally isolated from the rest of the country and the rest of the world. They're in the middle of the desert. You have to go through a gorge to get to them. They speak a language that nobody else in the world speaks, and they really just like it that way. And among them there are no churches, no Bible in their language, no radio programs in their language that can reach to them by satellite, no missionaries working among them, and no known believers. 38,000 people in the middle of the desert, no known believers. Somebody has to get to them. And Proverbs 24:11 says we must. And then... Thirdly, these are all just groups of people that have interested me through the years. The third group of people are the Greenlandic people, obviously of Greenland. Greenland is in the North Atlantic, northeast of Canada. That's the song that my kids are learning. They know where Greenland is. It's the largest island in the world that's not a a continent like North America or Australia a huge island, but most of it's covered in ice, and therefore there are only about 60,000 people that live there. And out of that 60,000, there are about 1,000 Christians, which isn't a lot, but it's better than the Afar people, and it's better than the Siwa people who have no Christians, 1,000 Christians. But here's what got me about, about the Greenlandic people. And as you look at this, you should the number that's important is the evangelical percentage, one6 of the people claim to be Christians, but most of them have no idea what the gospel is. 1.6% believe the gospel. But what got me were three things. First, because of the culture that they live in, it's cold, they're isolated. Um, Western culture has sort of decimated the, the ancient lifestyle that they had. And it says here under number one challenges for prayer that The results have been widespread immorality, alcoholism, apathy, mental illness, and suicide. Now, in a culture of 56,000, 60,000 people, when they say those things are widespread, that means there's a huge percentage of the population that is involved in alcoholism, mental illness, suicide, and immorality, and so on. And then the other two things that got me were 60 settlements, this is the third prayer request if you have this particular sheet, 60 settlements without an evangelical gospel witness. 60 settlements where there's no one there proclaiming the gospel. 60 towns. That's most of the island. Remember, there's only 60,000 people that live there. Can you imagine? I mean, we can't even imagine living in America and having a town that didn't have any church that believed the gospel at all. I mean, that's almost unbelievable. But in Greenland, there are 60 of them. And the third thing that got me was the last prayer request there, number four. There are only four evangelical gospel-preaching Greenlandic pastors in the whole country. Only four men who shepherd the flock of God and preach the gospel to their people in the whole country. And there should be more. There needs to be more. And God calls us to be a part of the task of delivering these Greenlandic people who are living their lives in despair without Jesus. We could spend weeks just talking about groups like the Afar and the Siwa and the Greenlanders because there are 4,200 groups like them. 4,200 groups in the world that have less than one one hundredth of a percent Christian. 
In other words, 4,200 different groups of people who are separate from the other groups around, either because they speak a different language or because they're isolated geographically, like the Siwa, like the people in the Amazon, up the Amazon River, or they're isolated maybe because they're violent like the Afar and so on. 4,200 different groups of people that have only one believer for every 10,000 people or less. Many of them have none. Let me just tell you about one other group. Population in this community is about 10,000. One evangelical church, and it's small, probably only a couple of percent of the people are believers. Most of them are Roman Catholics, just by background, but not religiously. Most of the rest of them are secular. It's a pretty unreached place. You know where I'm thinking of? Pleasant Ridge. 10,000 people within two square miles of us. 10,000 people, and almost none of them go to a gospel-preaching church. And that should startle us. We think about Greenland and go, wow, only 1.6% of the people are Christians. It's not much higher in this neighborhood. Some parts of our city, it's greatly higher than that, but here it's not much higher. One church, us, that God has put here. So the point is, we need to get to the ends of the earth But we also need to be at work in Jerusalem. You don't have to go to Greenland. You don't have to get a a dog sled or, or go through a gorge in Egypt or travel out into the middle of the countryside in Ethiopia to fulfill this verse. It needs to happen right here. I told some of you that I was at the community council meeting a few, probably five weeks ago now, with the opportunity to share what we're all about as a church. It was a great opportunity. They gave me five to seven minutes, and I think I used all seven minutes of it. But I told them a few things that we just do regularly, but then I shared the gospel with them. And there were about 40 people there. Okay, so not a huge crowd, but 40 people, uh, fairly representative of Pleasant Ridge in general. And what would you think if you were at some sort of a secular meeting like that and someone stood up and shared the gospel? I hope as a believer that you'd go up to them afterwards and say, hey, thank you. I believe that too. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Uh, It was great to hear the gospel at our community council meeting. I would hope that you would do that just to encourage the person that was speaking. But when I went, 40 people and nobody said anything about Jesus or the gospel or anything like that. And that's not why I went, is to be congratulated. I went to share the gospel. But the point is, I thought about it as I was on the way home, and I thought, well, most Christians would probably come up and say, thank you for sharing the gospel. And nobody did. And probably that meant 40 people representative of our community as a whole, and none of them were Christians. Probably. I don't know that for sure, but probably not. So there's work to be done here. There's work to be done at the ends of the earth. And there's work to be done at the end of your street. There are people all over, all around us that we look in the face every day who are staggering toward death and staggering toward slaughter. Just to make it a little more personal, probably none of you is without a next-door neighbor who's lost. I don't know all of your next-door neighbors. You may have Christians on either side of you. But based on the statistics in our city, based on knowing where some of you live, Probably each one of us has somebody either on the right side or the left side who's not a believer. Probably most of us have someone on both sides. Picture their face right now, those people around you. And then imagine yourself someday at their funeral. 
looking down on that face in the casket. How you feel on that day if you keep silent every day from that from this day to that one? How will you feel if they stagger their way towards what you know is eternal hopelessness without Jesus and you never speak to them about him? We have work to do here and at the ends of the earth. And that brings me to a second question. We asked who's dying spiritually. Secondly, we need to ask what are we to do? What are we to do? The answer is in verse 11. Read it again. Deliver those who are being taken away to death. Deliver them. And those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. Hold them back. Do you you hear the emotion in Solomon's voice? It's urgent. Hold them back. They're about to fall off the precipice. Hold them back. They're about to step out into oncoming traffic. Grab them and pull them back. That's what he's saying. That's how serious it is. Someone posted a an internet video recently by a a man named Penn Gillette. Some of you may know him. He's part of a a comedy team, an atheist comedy team called Penn and Teller. Um, He's a juggler. He's a comedian. But he's really well known as an atheist. He's gotten awards for promoting atheism. But someone, a Christian, posted this video of him speaking into a camera. It looked like he had made it himself a home video. And here's what this atheist comedian said I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize in other words who don't try to get people to come and and be believers in Jesus not at all if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that quote well it's not really worth telling them because it would make things socially awkward how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize, to believe that everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that. Then he says, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming and you didn't believe it, but that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that, he says. Here's an atheist. And he gets Proverbs 24:11. Probably he's never read it, but he gets it. If someone is about to step out into traffic, you tackle them. You hold them back. You do whatever it takes. And that's what Solomon is saying. We've got to do whatever it takes. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that just here in our city, in our spheres of influence, we have to open our mouths, don't we? We have to open our mouths. Lots of different ways to do that. Sometimes it's just in a casual conversation as the conversation turns towards spiritual things and you can pray that it does. But there are ways to be intentional too. Invite those lost neighbors for dinner. Send them a Christmas card and find a way to share the gospel in the Christmas card. That's a good thing to do. When your neighbors go in the hospital, perfect time to go in and say, can I pray with you? I mean, what are they going to say? No. And then you can pray the gospel, and then maybe you can read some gospel passages to them while they're there. These are all opportunities. You can start a home Bible study if you're brave and you have the time and the ability to do it. There are a million different ways, but find a way to get the gospel out of your mouth to those people all around you who are staggering to slaughter. Now, let me say this. My goal is not to make you feel guilty if you don't press a tract into the hand of every person that you ever pass by on the street. That's not the point. The point is, 
the people that God has given you opportunities with, take the opportunities. Don't miss the opportunities that God gives you. Now, there are some other ways that we can apply these verses. And there are three of them, and I said them on Sunday morning. I've probably said them at least twice every December for the last seven years. And so you already know what they are, but I'm going to say them again. Because we need to think about these, and we'll think about them twice more next December as well, Lord willing. How can we apply this verse? What are we to do as far as holding people back from death? Well, in missions terms, we're to go, right? Somebody has to go. The Siwas are a perfect example. These people that live in the middle of the desert in Egypt. Somebody has to go because they're not going to come out of that oasis to us. They live out in the middle of nowhere. They don't have any really way to get from there even to Cairo in their own country. They speak a different language than everybody else in their own country, much less us. Their culture is totally different. Their culture is closed. They don't want to come out of that oasis. So if they're going to be reached, someone has to go in. Someone has to go in. Maybe someone in this room. And there are 4,200 other groups where someone has to go in. So we need to go. We need to give. We need to give. Just sometimes I try to make you feel guilty and you give that way, and if that works, then great. Um, But tonight I want to encourage you. Because you give, there are two American missionaries working among the Afar people. Those are our Southern Baptist missionaries that work among this tribe that's almost totally unreached. Because you give, one of them was able to go three years ago with Anthony when the Afar were having an epidemic where all their camels were dying and they didn't know why. And this man that went with Anthony was a missionary but also a veterinarian. And he didn't know what was wrong with him, but they prayed and gave him penicillin and no no more camels died. And there's an open door there. And the reason there's an open door is because people like you give so that our missionaries can be there. And the one Ethiopian evangelist that works among the Afars, Afars working with them because he's working with the American missionaries that you support. Because you give, Lord willing, there will be 20 or 30 and down the road hopefully more new churches planted in other tribes and other villages in Ethiopia where there's no gospel witness. Because you give and Anthony is able to teach and others are able to teach with him. Because you give, three teams of two young men are going up the Amazon River this spring to live for a year among unreached tribes of people and to share the gospel with them. All that because of money that goes into these four offering plates and others like them all across the country. So keep giving. We have to open our mouths. We have to go, some of us. We have to give, all of us. And fourthly, primarily, at the foundation of all that, we have to pray, don't we? We have to pray. And I I decided tonight, I didn't want to talk about prayer. I decided tonight that in the middle of the sermon, we would stop and we would pray for the Afar and the Siwa and the people of Greenland. So instead of talking about prayer, we're going to take four or five minutes and pray. So all of you should have one of these, and I hope that you'll just bow silently where you are and take um, four or five minutes, read through the prayer requests, and pray for those people. Now, as you draw your... Prayers to a close. Let me just say one thing about prayer before we move on to a third and final question. And that is, don't stop tonight. I hope that you'll take 
the little card or sheet that is in your hands and hang it somewhere this week where you'll be reminded and maybe beyond this week and continue to pray for the Afar and the Siwa and the Greenlandic peoples. But we're asking three questions of Proverbs 24. First, who is it that's dying spiritually? Billions of people the world over. Second, what should we do? Well, we should pray and give and go. And here locally, we should speak. But then the third question is, why should we do these things? Why should we pray and give and go and speak? Why should we care about our neighbors and about the nations? What is our motivation for doing these things? Well, there are four answers, I think. Just briefly, four answers. Three of them come from Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. And one will be a a bit more of a New Testament motive that we'll come to at the end. Why should we care? Why should we give and pray and go and speak? Four reasons. Number one, because people are being carried away to death. Verse 11. If we don't pray and give and go and speak, people die forever. Afar people Siwa people, Greenlandic people, Cincinnatians, and all the tribes in between, they die forever without Jesus. The Bible is true, isn't it? There is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4. That's true. People without Jesus are dying. They are staggering to the slaughter. So surely we should give and go and pray and speak. Surely. And again, just imagine the funeral. Imagine the funeral. Imagine looking down into that face and knowing that you never prayed or never spoke to that person. The neighbor, the Siwa person pictured on the card in front of you, the Afar people pictured on the card. They're dying without Jesus. And again, this isn't me urging you that you have to have 150 tracts in your pocket and stuff one into everybody's coat as they go by this Christmas. It's simply a reminder, this passage is simply a reminder not to miss the opportunities that God does give you to pray, to speak, to give, and to go. You can't do everything. You can't share the gospel with everyone But you can share it with those that God puts in your path and puts on your heart. Make sure you do it. People are dying without Jesus. Secondly, why should we care? Why should we give and go and pray and speak? Well, because God is watching us. God is watching us. Verse 12a. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts and does he not know it? Who keeps your soul? God knows. God knows the opportunities He gives you. He knows the ones you take. He knows the ones you don't take. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, aren't they? Keeping watch on the evil and the good. Keeping watch on the missed opportunities and on the taken opportunities. God sees. 
He sees when He places an opportunity in our paths and we don't take it. And surely that grieves Him, don't you think? I was thinking about this today and the illustration occurred to me. I wonder what it would be like if I were walking through the store or if you were walking down the street and an old lady tripped and fell over and your child was there and instead of stopping to help her, he just looked at her or she just looked at her and passed on with a callous heart. There would be some serious conversations going on in the car on the way home, wouldn't there? You would be grieved. You would be disappointed. You would be ashamed. And I don't know that God's ever ashamed. He has nothing to be ashamed of. But surely He's grieved when His children see those who are staggering to death and pass on without stopping to help. God sees when we miss opportunities. He also sees, however, to balance things out when we take opportunities. He sees when the lady falls and we do help her up. He sees when the people are staggering to death and we do pray for them and we do give and we do go and we do speak to them. He sees the opportunities that we take. And just as the missed opportunities grieve his heart, surely the taken opportunities rejoice his heart and bring a smile. We want to please our Heavenly Father. He is watching us. And so we care and we give and we go and we pray and we speak. Thirdly, why should we care? Why should we get the gospel out in all these ways? Well, because verse 12b, there's a reward and or a recompense for what we do with these verses. Will he not render to man according to his work? Solomon writes, will he not? Surely he will. There's a reward for taking opportunities and there is a recompense for missing them. And in this regard, the book of Ezekiel chapter 33 applies in some ways to us all. Let me read to you from Ezekiel 33 verses 1 through 9. God speaking to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But here's the key in verse 6. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require from the watchman's hand. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Now Ezekiel had a special task. He was a watchman over the whole house of Israel to give them warning, to tell them God's word. 
And we're not given that task, but we are all set up as watchmen in our own little spheres of influence. We are the ones who know the bad news and the good news and who ought to be sharing it. And as God said to Ezekiel, I think so he says to us here in Proverbs 24:12. If you don't blow the trumpet, if you don't sound the alarm, if you don't give the warning, if you don't share the good news, the people are going to perish and it will be their own fault that they perish. They die for their sins, not yours. But I'll hold you responsible for the fact that you did not blow the trumpet. I don't think he's speaking about salvation. We're not saved or not saved based on how much we share the gospel, how many opportunities we take or how many opportunities we miss. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Salvation by works, specifically the work of telling people about God. But that's not biblical. We're not saved by works. We're saved by Christ and His works. And yet... Ezekiel was reminded and Solomon is reminding us that there is some sort of reward and or recompense for how we deal with these verses, for how we share the gospel. Perhaps it's an eternal reward or lack thereof, some sort of blessing in heaven or missing out of a kind of blessing in heaven. Maybe it's an earthly reward or an earthly recompense. We're really not told. Ezekiel's not told. Solomon doesn't tell us. So we don't know exactly what the reward or the recompense may be, and it probably is different for different people. But we know enough to know that God will render to a man according to his work. Not salvation in this case, but discipline and or reward. And we need to make personal application of that. We need to think about that when we have these opportunities. This is a motivation for us. And we need to think when things aren't going the way we thought, when we've prayed and we've done what we thought we were supposed to do and there seems to be no blessing on our lives or on a particular aspect of our lives, there may be a thousand different reasons why God is allowing that to happen. All of them for our good, Romans 8.28. But one of the reasons sometimes why things may seem to foul up upon us perhaps could be connected to Proverbs 24.12. When things aren't going as we thought they would, perhaps one of the questions we should ask is, Am I just passing over opportunities to share the gospel? Am I ignoring my responsibility? So that's a third reason why we should care and give and go and pray and speak. Because there is reward if we do and recompense if we don't. And fourthly, finally, why should we care? Why should we give? Why should we go? Why should we pray for the nations? Why should we open our mouths here at home? Well, this from outside of Proverbs 24, because... Jesus is worthy. He's worthy. He is worthy of your effort. And He is worthy of the lives of the people for whom He has died. He's worthy. He's worthy of your effort. Last year at this time we thought about Helen Rosevere and how she would quote another missionary, C.T. Studd. And the motto for both of them was, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, No sacrifice is too great for me to make for Him. If Jesus Christ is God Himself and He laid down His life for me, then surely, whatever the cost, I can speak for Him. I can give to Him. I can pray on His behalf for the nations. I can open my mouth. I can go. Surely I can. 
He's worth it. He gave His life for me. He gave His life for me. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Because Jesus is worth it to me personally, I ought to speak for Him. And we ought to speak and go and give and pray because He's worthy of the lives of the people for whom He died. He's worthy of those Afar for whom He died and those Siwa for whom He died and those Greenlandic peoples for whom He died. He's worthy of your neighbors for whom He's given His life. He's worthy of their praise. And for that reason, we ought to speak so that He gets the praise in their lives that He deserves. For that reason, we ought to go and give and pray. I've told you this story before and I close with it again tonight. Two young German believers heard of an island in the Caribbean owned by an atheist British man who intended to use that island as a sugar plantation and to run its economy largely on the basis of slaves and on the back of slaves. And because he was an atheist, he had determined that no missionary would come to this island. No preacher would come to this island. They would be through with all of that. They wouldn't hear any of that. They would just get about their work, produce the sugar, and earn the money. And these two young Germans heard about the island and the people who were to live there as slaves and worse than living there as slaves, to live there with no gospel, to live and die there with no Word about Jesus. But no missionary could go. No preacher could go. What were they to do? Well, the only thing they could do was to sell themselves to be slaves. And that's what they did. So that they could live there and die there and share Jesus from the inside. And their friends thought they were crazy. Even their Christian friends who loved Jesus and who loved the cause of missions thought they were crazy. But they went. And as the boat sailed away there and their friends were on the shore, they locked arm in arm and with the other arms that were free, raised their hands to the sky and said, May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of His suffering. And that was the whole point. They weren't going because it was an adventure. They were going because Jesus suffered. And He deserves His reward. He deserved His reward from among those slaves on that island in the Atlantic. And they went and they were never heard from again. But surely they and others among their slave friends are heard from now at the throne. Jesus is worthy those people for whom He died and they won't praise Him unless we pray, unless we go, and unless we give, and unless we speak. Deliver them who are being taken away to death, who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back.